So this particular practice, as you have guessed, is the pleasure practice. And um, this particular application of nonlinear has to do with something that I call background pleasure. So you're essentially engaging in an inquiry about background pleasure. And so background pleasure could be um, looked at as what's already there, but somewhat submerged, somewhat or completely submerged. So for instance, in the morning when you get dressed and uh, you put on your belt or your bra or your watch, you can actually feel that garment or the shoes or whatever on your body. And you're acutely aware of whatever that is, particularly if it's a bra. (laughs) And then uh, after a while, probably relatively quickly, a couple of minutes, you're no longer aware unless there's something that really chafes or you know, causes constant irritation. The um, awareness of the clothes on your back, the watch strap on your um, arm goes away. And partly that has to do with the body uh, not wanting to waste energy, so to speak, with things um, that are, you know, not that important in that particular moment, and partly it has to do with uh, disembodiment of a certain kind. As there is people who are very aware of those things, both negatively and positively. So we're looking at this practice of um, working with background pleasure as a way to uh, work with what is already there, what is already in existence which once again brings us back to intimacy. There is um, typically uh, what people describe is that there's a huge gap between feeling pretty much nothing to, let's say, orgasm. And what happens for many people is that the gap is so huge that it can't be bridged or not bridged easily. So you go through a whole day of not feeling your body for all the reasons we've described yesterday, and then suddenly you're in a situation uh, where you have sensual or sexual engagement, and it takes a long time till stuff comes back online. And, um, you know, if you have a few hours and you can uh, work with your body and you have a very skilled lover and all of that, Great, but if you are more in the category of people who have a whole life and uh, occasionally want some real actual pleasure, you'll probably have a lot of work to do to get to that threshold where you actually feel something. It's not true for everyone and not true in every situation because, of course, the situations where your body just turns on massively. But I'm talking about the chronic uh, lack of sensual and sexual um, awareness of the body. So if you're working with what's already there, that has a few benefits, one of which, of course, is that you're not dependent on somebody else. 
that's probably the biggest benefit of all. Um, and hence, with that, you don't have um, all the entanglements that come with it. But also, you are, of course, if there's somebody else involved, a much better partner because you're not needy or you don't have to rely on the other person to do the right thing for you. And background pleasure can be used not only for the sexual um, arousal, uh, but also just for the general sensual aliveness and awareness of the body. Of course, sensual awareness equals body awareness, because if you're aware of the sensations in your body, then you're aware of your body. So the sequence in this practice, as you've noticed, is that you notice what is already there. And if you have some pleasure or happiness or joy or well-being uh, or relaxation somewhere in the body, then that's where you start. If you don't have that because it was a particular tough day or you're particularly numb, <coughs> you start by noticing the absence of pain. So you'll go, oh, well, there's a spot that doesn't hurt. But there's a spot that doesn't feel contracted. And you begin working with that. And once you have an idea in your body where that sits, and you kind of can massage it to stay alive, and it might change, then what you do is you'll expand it. And that's the main practice in the pleasure practice, is to find ways through the motions of your body, through touch, you can use touch, through breath, which is, a, is really not the primary way of doing it. But sometimes you'll start feeling like when you breathe in, kind of the front surface of your body gets caressed. So then you can kind of play with breath as a way to also you know, caress the body. You can use hands, touch foot on foot, you know, however you want to do that. And you'll see how far you can spread it. Um, the body can get used to conducting energy through the whole system, uh, through a little bit of practice. There might be areas that you've never done that. I don't know how many of you feel pleasure in your fingertips, but there's lots of pleasure in the fingertips if you can spread it there. And um, that's how you work with this when you do pleasure practice by yourself. The key aspects here is that you don't rely on outside influences, even though the touch could be considered outside, but it's your own touch, but you're not relying on whatever, vibrators or um, other people or foods or you know oils or whatever would be considered in addition and you're not working with generating something out of nothing, where you engage, for instance, in a fantasy or something, and you make something happen based on external, so to speak, than internal. <clears throat> the music helps, yes. Yeah, music always is, is, is a nice way to kind of engage and, and feel things, so that's all right, but I'm more talking about other people, fantasies, um, going, okay, you know, there's whole schools out there where you, you just, I don't know, uh, 
in in the states right now everybody's doing pole dancing right and so there there's the you know feel the power that you have when you are on a pole and you can turn man on yeah feel that right that would be an external imposing of a of a certain narrative on your pleasure versus feeling perhaps how when you lean against that pole that coolness on your body creates a certain sensation that does a certain thing which spreads a certain way which makes your body move a certain way um so there's there's that and then there's the from the inside out well it's not so much that you want need to stop the fantasies you don't start with one yeah if it if it allows the sensation to spread great right if it gets you in your head uh not great same with the dancing right there's lots of people who and particularly good pole dancers if we go with pole dancing but there's many other forms of dancing they actually do exactly what i've said right they feel it from the inside out and then other people just tend to go from the outside in you know so yeah you know, these are rough estimations of what happens they can be a fantasy that arises and that just enlivens your whole body and spreads the pleasure everywhere by all means go by it but if it's a fantasy that requires that you deal with one body part and one body part only and it must be attended a certain way then that's a different thing it's not good or bad it's just a different thing we're talking about spreading it um this has a few benefits outside of increasing sensation um it also has the benefit of you becoming so to speak more conductive when touched more conductive when being blown on by the wind uh, more conductive when you feel sun on your skin um you become much more alive in your sensual perception which then of course allows you to you know derive pleasure from all kinds of things smell touch from all your senses and from outside input that elicits certain sensations in the body often you see that when people start uh, engaging in a ver- variety of things you know could be doing massages could be uh in in self practice can be in drug experiences and there's all kinds of ways that that you see this where the yawn is kind of a a sign that the body opens and um it not always but sometimes has to do with the body trying to get a little bit more oxygen so that's one thing to look at um the other thing it can be is just the conductivity increasing and it could be a throwing off it could also just be like a stretch you know where you can after a stretch you you don't feel the subtle sensations again for a moment but then they come back and they come back actually more fully so all of those could be options and how i would go at it is just notice how you could utilize a yawn because a yawn can be very pleasurable as well so you could expand it in the yawn since yawning uh, was discussed by you do you want to add anything to that in summary very briefly it's feeling the almost yawn quality you know as the yawn is there and you can yawn <sighs> or you could feel the almost yawn quality which is sort of behind here or behind the eyes or something like that and trace its edges and it can kind of spread back through the scalp down the neck through the body as a sort of um 
pre yawn you know like yawn four play or something like that you know <laughs> um, the, the uh, you made the connection with orgasm there as a sort of corollary and it is a natural connection to make you know because the yawn is sort of like the orgasm in a certain way so just put, you know playing with uh, relaxing around the almost yawn feeling can be quite uh, enlivening and you know in meditation, for instance, when you're falling asleep, whatever it is, but similarly in that situation. But if, you know, you could check out the Yawngasm clip on SoundCloud, it's mostly brief. This practice isn't meant as a substitution. This practice is meant as an investigation and, a, and an adding to your body's ability to have full body pleasure to have pleasure, period, have sensual awareness, and um, over time, ideally, allow the system to be so conductive that the pleasure can go anywhere. Right? That's what this practice is. There is whole practices, whole sets of practices, where you essentially, um, I'm going to say this very uh, you know, lightly, uh, so you know, this isn't... This isn't yeah, it's not a religious statement, but you kind of get fucked by God instead of by a man. And now, of course, nothing quite, um, on one end, nothing quite beats being with another human. On the other end, as you've probably noticed, even the best sex is you always missing something or you want the next thing on top of the best sex. So it's not an either or, hopefully nobody will have to go without all the way. But there's lots of people who go without. And there's lots of people who go without who've you know, never had sex even. And they're still sensually um, and creatively alive. Uh, like I, I'm thinking of one particular guy who's a monk that I know who's in his 90s, who's probably one of the most sensually alive people I know, you know where you, he walks around He's like filled with, you know, fuck and life and, and energy within his 90s. And it's not because he suppressed it and has never fucked a woman. It's because he's found a way to fuck everything, so to speak, right? And be fucked by everything. So there's always that option in addition to hopefully finding someone with whom you want to combine yourself in all ways possible. Uh, I personally think it's good to have options so that you're not having to chase, um, you know, your genital of choice. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, but this particular practice is more about um, giving the body the ability to be highly responsive in the sensual sexual, uh, you know, so that... A simple touch goes, you know, which of course then makes the, the actual touch of a man much more um, interesting. Because as you know, a lot of people require harder and harder and harder stimulation uh, because there isn't that much sensation there, either from having been numb or not being um, trained or never having experienced certain things. So this is kind of the counteraction to the needing more and more and more stronger vibrator, bigger flogger, you know, greater two by four to be hit with, or whatever people are into, you know, in, in some way. Uh, this is the other way to it, sensitizing, 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 and 
training the body for pleasure. A lot of these things uh, clarify over time with practice, you know. And then I don't mean that to say, well, it's not a good question or anything like that, because it is a good question. And you're right, it's similar to the own question. What should you do? Well, if, if very quickly that um, pushing, kind of like throwing off feeling becomes obvious, yeah. because behind that feeling is a, some sort of agitation of something. Some, there's some flavor behind the throwing off. It's uh, somehow, right, some discomfort or resistance uh, flavor or uh, agitation or whatever it might be. And eventually that outs itself sooner or later because you just can't do enough, you know, moaning and groaning. You're moaning and groaning, moaning and groaning, and then it's almost as if the ground's out from under you. In other words, you find yourself somewhat ahead of, well, I'm imagining like uh, Braveheart when they all charge, except it's just you charging, you know. <laughs> and so you find yourself, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like totally in it, and like, rah, rah, and then you go, rah, rah. You look around and you realize it's, you've been a little bit on a trip. So that, that sort of tense, and then you go, oh, okay, and then you go, okay, rah, 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 and then you go down again, you know. Maybe you try yawning next or something. But, but it sort of, it sort of uh, clears up, I think, uh, over, over practice. But in general, to be said to everybody, of course sound is part of conducting pleasure. Um, and of course in here you're probably going to be a lot more restricted than at home when there's nobody there or when there's only the people that know you are there. Um, but it's definitely something to explore the same way you explore touch and you explore breath and you explore different pressures of your um, body against the mat or you know things of that nature. Uh, that, as Steve says, comes with practice, but of course sound is part of that, yeah. very naturally so. Yeah. But as we do with all the nonlinear, essentially the sound follows the body's impulse and not the, found, the sound is the thing that makes the body do things. Well, so. right. Yes, you, it could be that, or it could, once again, right, it's the same thing. You could be doing this, and it really, really drops you in, and your whole body relaxes because it synchronizes the hemispheres of your brain and blah, 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 blah. Or... You, you go in a trance and you're just checked out, right? And you're rocking like somebody in a corner. And the same is true with the, with the purring, so to speak, right? You could moan and really feel what that does and spread it. And then, then the moan, you know, is a response to what's happening. Or you, you know, just make a sound because it's good to make a sound. Yeah, yeah it, gives, it replaces one sensation with another. It's not neither good nor bad. I was just saying... With the yawn and the stretch, you have a very specific kind of a big, I mean, big is relative, it's still super subtle, right? But you have, if you do this thing, ah, oh, you know, it, you feel this, you don't necessarily feel this in that moment. So you're um, localizing something for a moment, but then often you'll find when that local sensation has subsided, there's more, you know, you feel it somewhere else more or the, the whole body is more open. So it's not, you don't want to do that at all. It's just different things do different things. Yeah. Yes, and then it licks its own asshole. <laughs> it wouldn't go too far down the cat <laughs> analogy here, you know. <laughs> Which is also clearly very pleasurable to the cat. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
Yes, but yeah, I mean, stretching in general, right? I mean, there's, there's, but that's the invitation. The invitation here is not um, do this and then this and then this, but explore how does your body become sensually alive. Uh, and that's what you do, including the... Um, <laughs> that will show itself in practice. Um, general guide, and, and it could also be completely different tomorrow. Right, because a lot of factors play into this. But one of the things that you can always play with is feeling contact in the areas where you don't feel that much, you know, just pressing your leg really against the ground for a moment and, and kind of feeling your body meet the ground. I'm, I'm kind of leaning on it. Yeah. And then, you know, ah, and then there's a little bit more there or moving. That's why I was saying move one foot over the other foot. You know, or things of that nature, wiggle your hips, you know, start, start uh, f- wiggling some part of your body where there isn't a lot and then see if something lights up and then if something lights up, you kind of fan it a bit. But it could be completely different two days from now. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk a bit about embodiment. We're going to talk a bit about embodiment. And uh, embodiment's one of those terms that means different things to different people. So we're going to define it uh, within the lens of the practices we did this morning, this afternoon. Sometimes when people say embodiment, they mean getting oneself into a kind of a state uh, of strong feeling. Like uh, run around the block and feel your body, that kind of thing. Or do an aggressive yoga class and feel the rush of endorphins and the tingling in your body. Or something like that. Or stand in horse dance for an hour and feel your body, that kind of thing. But when we're talking about embodiment, we're not really talking about that. When we're defining it as a intimacy with what's actually happening, intimacy with what's actually happening or what's there to be felt. And in that sense, most of the embodiment strategies we employ today are about traversing the uh, plane of the gross to the subtle inducing a sort of a downward spiral from the gross to the subtle. And there's a reason for that. So if you're in a rock concert, like a KISS concert or something like that, and someone is, yeah. Who goes to a KISS concert? <laughs> you! There you go. So if me and Therese are at a KISS concert, by ourselves, evidently. Anyway. Um, You're at a KISS concert and somebody is there with you. Uh, Apparently that's not going to be the case, but let's just assume there are other people at this KISS concert. Someone's there with you and they're talking to you at a certain uh, regular volume. You won't be able to hear them because KISS are playing and Paul Stanley's doing his thing. That's a member of KISS and uh, they're doing all their stuff. If you take that same person to a library where the ambient noise level is less than a KISS concert, and they speak in the same volume, you'll be able to hear them. 
It might even be quite loud, actually. And they've been talking this whole time. Uh, but you were only able to feel, you could say, what uh, the sound of their talking in the one environment. So a lot of the embodiment strategies we're doing are involving this sort of gross subtle idea of lowering the ambient noise level so that you can uncover previously submerged sensations, things that were always there, signals that were always firing, but were drowned out by the ambient noise level. And the thing that sets the ambient noise level is a few things. Uh, there's the factors such as you know, stress, uh, preoccupation um, with uh, life and this sort of thing has an effect. But on the very specific level, loud sensations obscure quieter sensa- sensations. Loud sensations obscure quieter sensations. They drown them out. So if you're deep in a forward bend and you have the loud sensation of the deep stretch in your hamstring, perhaps accompanied by the narrative that that sensation, that pain of the stretch, is going to make your life better, for instance, or going to make you a better person. That uh, adds fuel to the fire. But even if you're just stretching and you feel that deep stretch, you're less likely to feel the subtle ache in your L5 that's being pulled out by that aggressive sort of stretch. Or you're less likely to feel the small micro tears that are happening. And similarly, when that stretch triggers the rush of endorphins to, con- to uh, disguise the injuries taking place, you won't feel those injuries. That's what the endorphins are there for. So the thing about intimacy is there's no informed consent on it. There's no informed consent on intimacy. Some of you have heard me say that before. And what that means is with intimacy, you're going to feel what's there whatever's there, regardless of whether you like it or not, or whether you think it should be different or the same, you're going to feel what's there. In that way, intimacy is different to optimizing conditions. We'll talk about that in a moment. So the foundation of embodiment really is this intimacy, this intimacy. Let's have a little look at some of the strategies we use, shall we? Okay, intimacy without imposition. Intimacy without imposition. Or feeling without imposition. That was the first strategy. For instance, when we inquired into the possibility of our breath being nothing more than our body's passive response to its need for oxygen, when we inquired into the possibility of the breath being nothing more than our body's passive response to its need for oxygen, That is an intimacy practice. We're inquiring into the possibility of being aware of our breath without fucking with it. Being aware of our breath without imposing on it or without doing anything to alter it. Feeling the breath and is it possible to allow the body to breathe? The body which has had millions of years of respiration, research and development and 
breathes and has never really fucked up your breathing, even when you go to sleep and you have no oversight on it, it manages to do it just fine. It's this incredible ability to calculate the required oxygen level in the, in the body and to calibrate the breathing accordingly. Is it possible to trust that mechanism and be intimate with whatever rhythm presents in the breath, even if it doesn't match your aesthetics or even if it is not as deep as you'd like it to be? Even if you think that the depth of your breath has anything to do with the depth of your presence or your practice or your personality in general, is it possible to, for a moment, lay that aside and just let the body breathe without imposing on it, imposing a certain rhythm, rate, or depth, or a symmetry? So that's one intimacy practice that we did. Another one, tracking. Tracking. And you could do limited or freestyle tracking. Limited or freestyle. So the limited tracking we did, having established this sort of intimacy with the breath, in other words, allowing the breath to kind of be itself, you could say, if you wanted to be Californian about it, then we track it by matching our movements to the breath. So we continue to be intimate with the breath, hugging it, pressed against it almost, lips against lips, and responding to that by moving, tracking. Rather than in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four. So that um, inquiry into the possibility of the movements following the natural breath is an example of a limited tracking. A more freestyle tracking is moving what you're feeling. Moving what you're feeling, which is the practice you did this morning before lunch. And in that practice, which is part of the nonlinear method that you're learning, you translate whatever content is in your experience into movement. So whatever you feel, it migrates from the place you feel it into movement somehow. And it doesn't, you don't have to make the movement look as if it's the same thing as you're feeling. So perhaps you feel, so we say, despondency in the body, despondency. Um, you don't have to look despondent, you know. <laughs> despondency might look like this or something like that. It doesn't matter. You're, in a sense, attempting to step out of the way of the expression of the feeling from wherever it may be, say despondency in the chest, um, but you can insert any, any feeling. So it won't always necessarily look like, uh, you're not making, in other words, a performance of it. You're not making a display of it. And those of you who, who you've read your, your Peter Levine will understand something about that. There's a certain sense in which you let the body express in whatever way it does express that uh, what you're feeling. You can also pour your Thoughts, you can also pour your uh, self-commentary into the movement. It doesn't have to be an emotional or physical sensation. It could be the activity of your mind. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing or something like that. Or why am I distracted always by my thoughts? Why am I distracted? You can move the words. Why am I distracted by my thoughts? Allow them to migrate from the head into the body and moving.
You could also move the contour. So that's the content, moving the content. You could move the contour as well, the shape of it. Certain, sometimes your, your mind has a certain frantic quality to it, or the emotions have a certain jumbled quality to it. It's difficult to ascertain what is the emotion here. Is it anger? Is it happiness? Is it sad? It's sort of everything at once. And as soon as you start to get a grip on it, it shifts and change. So you can move the contour of change, the contour of flow, the contour of chaos, whatever it might be. In other words, you're moving the flavor of your experience. In a certain way, the content is not that relevant. And you'll find as you move more and more and more, and those of you who've done a lot of nonlinear will know that, that eventually the distinctions between the, lab the ability to label the sensations or the feelings that come up, uh, it, it goes away or it can go away. And there's just sort of sensation without any particular label on it. It moves so fast or it's so ambiguous that it's difficult to call it something. Fine. You just get out of the way, take the cap off, and allow it to come out in your body in whatever way it does. The connection is that the movements are inspired by or animated by the thoughts, but they don't have to be a translation of them in a direct sense. In other words, it's not like a sort of improv theater thing where you're trying to look like the thing you're thinking. Mm -hmm. That's fine. It's fine if they do look like it, they just don't, that, you don't have to intend it to be the case. What he's talking about is more that some people, you know, um, they'll go, oh, oh, this feels really good. How do I make myself look really good? How, do, how you see it most is when, you, when people feel anger, right? How they want to express anger is they want to show anger. But sometimes anger isn't expressed by going, ah! uh, very, little, very little anger is actually expressed by doing, you know, these theatrical displays of anger. Anger might be just, you know, so, something that is your body's response to anger. And one of the big aspects of learning this method and, and working with it yourself is that you get to feel what your body does with certain emotions. So essentially, anger is a good example, right? My display of anger and your display of anger might look very, very different. And by you exploring your display of anger versus having a theatrical display of anger will help you identify the somatic, um, you know, light up, that the way it, it lights up your body so that when you are sitting on your desk and you're not even feeling your body that much, suddenly you, it goes pring, you know, over your liver, let's say. And you go, oh, shit, I must be angry. Right? And then you can go, oh, what just happened? And then you can also work with it. So it's a very personal education of how your body deals with certain emotions versus displaying emotions the way that we are um, culturally or through our, um, you know, programming have been uh, told to move it. Sadness is another one. Sadness does not necessarily translate into crying. People always think that that's the way. But I didn't cry. Well, maybe sadness is not expressed in your body as crying. Maybe it's a withdrawal. Right? Maybe it's a shutting something off. Maybe it's a going deep inside and no longer moving much. Or, so that's the exploration. Mm -hmm. So a good example is uh, numbness. I don't feel anything. Well, you move feeling nothing. 
you just move the feeling of numbness. So that is a feeling. You do feel something. It's nothing, you know, right? So that's something. Um, so you move that, and sometimes that numbness gives away to a certain kind of discomfort. You move the discomfort. The discomfort becomes anger. The anger becomes sadness or injury or something like that. Sometimes they can flow, like Michaela is talking about, through, back through the, sort of the pattern of the installation of those feelings. But anyway, the point being, anything is fair game. Anything you feel, you can just move it. Whether it's a thought, a feeling, anything. Mm-hmm. You, could move the, you could move being present with what you feel, too. You could move the experience, which is a series of sensations, of being present with what you feel. You don't have to stop at what you feel. You could also move the mover. You could move the mover, move the feeler. You see what I'm saying? Because the feeling of yourself being present is a set of sensations. It's a cocktail of sensations. It's the sensations that compromise the sense of you, of the self. And you can move those sensation sets too. You don't have to move what's outside. Outside of the observer. In other words, there's you, and then there's what you feel. But you is a feeling as well. A series of sensations. You can move those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. In that sense, you don't have to track something in, by, say, following only one thing. You can be ping-pong, ping-pong. That's right. The, uh, you, could, you could say there's three focus ranges, three potential focus ranges. One is uh, freestyle, freestyle, in the sense that you just, wherever your attention goes, to whichever sensory event comes into your awareness, you move that. Because you're feeling all sorts of things that you don't recognize. So you, don't have, you can do all over the place, right? That's fine. Letting the mind go wherever it goes, like we did in the meditation. You could uh, attempt to restrict the range of focus. So I'm only going to move my emotional feelings, or I'm only going to move the contour of my thoughts, or I'm only going to move the content of my thoughts, something like that. So you could restrict it in that sense, and you follow it through. Or you could attempt to have a global awareness, a sort of global keeping the entire of your uh, experience simultaneously in your awareness and move it all. So you should say global, local or restricted, and freestyle, freestyle. That's the three focus ranges uh, that you, if you wanted to split it that way, you could also split it that way. But essentially, distraction is not a problem. Being thrown off the horse of concentration isn't a problem because you just move distraction. You just move whatever it is your mind jumps onto next. You can even just move the quality of your jumping mind. Yeah, there's lots of things you could do. You don't have to move, but we're, this is what we're doing, and there are pros. There are pros and cons to that, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. Using that as an expressive expression. The other third strategy we used, we used a few, but I'm just giving you three. Is responding to sensation. Responding to sensation. So the best example of this. Do you remember when we were on our back and we were turning our heads from left to right, but only so far as we could do so without with, without feeling pain, <laughs> ache, or discomfort, or something not quite right. That's an example of responding to sensation. That tends to induce the downward spiral from the gross to the subtle. Because when you respond to this sensation, and then you respond to that sensation, rather than driving through, usually if you feel a bit of tightness or tension in the neck, the habit, or the a habit, is to push through it. 
to try and override that sense of tension or stiffness with the stronger sensation of stretch. You know, that kind of feeling, basically, to flood the body with that feeling. Okay. These tend to induce the downward spiral from the gross to the subtle. So let's talk a little bit about optimizing conditions. Because intimacy isn't the whole story with embodiment. It's not the whole story. It's the momentum of the organism naturally, inevitably, to optimize its conditions. In other words, you can't help attempting to optimize your conditions. Everything you do is towards that. And what you decide is optimal in terms of your conditions uh, is dictated by your pleasure-pain calculation. Your pleasure-pain calculation. Your subjective pleasure-pain calculation. In other words, we tend to do what we think is best for us. We tend to do what takes us away from pleasure towards away from pain towards pleasure. On the occasions where we go towards pain and away from pleasure, such as meditating until your knees break, or doing handstands as your neck um, ruptures, something like that, headstands, some aggressive pose. It's because we think that in the long run, that asceticism or that brutalization of the body will work. If you have a narrative that somehow the way to transcend pain or something is to induce it and then bear it, then, of course, that is uh, affecting your pleasure-pain calculation. So even though you experience a lot of pain in that moment, it's for the greater good, so to speak, in terms of your own pleasure-pain calculation. The conditions that uh, influence or the elements that condition, you could say, our, our pleasure-pain calculation are, for the most part, subterranean, unconscious. We'll discuss some more of those things over the weekend. But suffice to say, intimacy with sensation is not the same thing as attempting to optimize the conditions. Being intimate with what you feel says nothing about what you will then do with your feeling. It doesn't necessarily say if you are if you're intimate with what you can feel, it doesn't mean you shouldn't attempt to improve it or attempt to optimize whatever it is the situation is. There's an idea that if you're intimate with something, if you, should we say, open to sensation then that makes you a doormat. But your relationship to the sensation says nothing about what you then do in response to it. So that's an important thing. And in fact, the more able you are, willing you are, to feel what's actually happening, the better positioned you are to make skillful action to optimize your conditions. So in that sense, self-inquiry, which is what we're talking about here with this intimacy business, has the same fruits in many ways as self-improvement. With greater intimacy tends to come greater sensory clarity. And that sensory clarity provides insight into self, world or other. It tends to do that. There's a tendency for that to happen.
And it places you then best to optimize your conditions, which you will inevitably attempt to do. Being able to feel what was previously below the threshold of awareness tends to lead to insight into self, world, and other, which best positions you to optimize your conditions. And when I'm saying that these are subjective pain-pleasure calculations, for instance, if you give up your stripper and cocaine addiction, it's good for you, but it's bad for the stripper. So whose self are you helping anyway? In other words, one man's good condition is another man's bad condition. One man's vice is another man's profit. The conditions themselves have no absolute value in terms of good or bad. They're relative, subjective to you. So in that sense, any attempt to find the absolute answer, the truest path, the correct route, is futile. Because you're assuming uh, an objective uh, through line that isn't there. Food for thought. In other words, you're unconsciously driven. Your decision-making process, this is food for thought, by the way. You know, I may as well uh, give it to you. Your, your decision-making process is the color commentary. The color commentary. Like the sports announcer who's commentating the game, he's not playing in the game. He's tracking the game. Uh, there's uh, some evidence or research that suggests that by the, the, the actual impulse to act and the, and the decision-making areas of the brain, you'd think the decision would come before the action. But actually, <laughs> it seems that there's some research, but who knows, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, that the action precedes the impulse in the brain that decides. So I'm suggesting that your decisions are influenced or uh, driven by your pleasure-pain calculations, which are themselves conditioned unconsciously. Exactly. Well, if we want to consider that, it's quite a thought. If the, uh, considering the fact that... Considering the fact of all the things that had to happen for, let's say, us to be here, all of the factors that went into our being here. Somebody had to make the clothes that we're wearing. Somebody had to make the clothes that that person wore. Somebody had to make the food that fed the person who made the clothes for, for, that we're wearing, and so on and so forth. In other words, if any of those conditions was altered, we wouldn't be here as we are. In fact, it's inevitable that we're here as we are wearing what we're wearing. So if you're wondering, am I having a bad hair day? or uh, have I made a fashion faux pas, you couldn't have worn anything else. Yeah. But anyway, we're going off the point there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's the end of uh, that, I think. Yeah, where's my tea? Questions. Questions. As Steve was saying, uh, you know, in the last, whatever, four minutes of his speech, all the factors that go into who we are in the moment that we are, who we are, 
there, there are millions of them, right? So the music we play influences your movements as much as the food you ate, as where you are in the room, as, uh, you know, I mean, there's a million factors that play into it. It doesn't matter what plays into it as long as you're responsive to all the aspects of what's happening. So it's perfectly fine to let the music move you and feel that, that movement in your bones, so to speak. And then that informs a whole thing. It's mostly the, the, the caveat with the music uh, is that a lot of people are used to moving for performance, which one of the nice things about everybody having their eyes closed, aside from that being the process, but is also that you don't have to perform. Right? But a lot of people habitually, when they feel a certain music or a certain thing happens, they want to look pretty or they want to look like they're trained or they want to look whatever, devotional, or, you know, that they, they, they superimpose um, ideas of how they should be moving over what actually moves. So that's the caveat there. But of course the music will inform you and massage you and be the backbone and Well, I would think if that, uh, if that particular thought arises, I deal with it, right? Whatever happens is what happens. So you would have the same experience in meditation, let's say, right? You could sit perfectly still and be in whatever you call emptiness. And then it's like something pops up. And then in meditation, you have one way of dealing it in this particular way. Um, you just move whatever that is. Yeah. And then you either go back to empty or the next thing occurs, the next thing occurs. So it's essentially just whatever pops up is what's going on. Yeah, yeah that's good. That confusion is uh, great. That don't know is great. That's spaciousness, that's openness. You know? So um, it's, it's totally cool. You can move that confusion. Or you can, uh, in other words, or you can, you know, recongeal, or you can expand again, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But it's interesting to notice the place that you come from when you come back is the same place that you go to when you go away. So it's possible to experience and move, in fact, the arising of the personality, the self, from uh, uh, as it switches on, comes online, and as it goes back again. You do, it doesn't have to be a, a conflict in a certain way. You know, it's a bit like breathing or inhaling, exhaling. The second question was, you're doing your thing and suddenly I'm saying, make sure that you're not moving habitually. And then you go, oh shit, am I moving habitually? No, I wasn't moving habitually. You know, that kind of a thing. Well, you can see that um, kind of like a pattern interrupt, right? Where, because some people are moving and they say it and they don't even flinch. Nothing in them changes, right? Because they're in their thing and they're doing their thing and it doesn't even register. And then some people go, ooh, am I, uh, 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 
and then of course I'll shut back up, right? And then you go back in. But maybe you had a moment where whatever that was, what got, you know, jumbled enough that more can or less or whatever can appear. It's just, it's a good reminder. And I think um, perhaps this came up when you talked about uh, when I'm stressed, my body reacts this way. When I'm emotional, I cope this way, right? Those, those patterns go into nonlinear as well. We have ways to move our bodies when we're stressed. We have ways to move our bodies when we cope. We have comfort moves um, that keep us in a certain range. And so that, speaking about that is just a kind of a, like a little <laughs> to see if something can be shaken up. So once again, you go in your head, that's fine. You come back from there in the body. And as Steve said it, you know, just a moment ago, so I'm just going to repeat what he said. There's no preferred state. And that's the really important thing because in a lot of um, yoga, not in all yoga instructions, but in a lot of yoga instruction, a lot of women's work, there is a preferred state. Open is better than closed. Happy is better than sad. Um, you know, relaxed is better than tense. And, and so there's a certain value judgment you have to get yourself out of when you are actually dealing with the raw you know emotion or the raw sensation um, because none of it is bad none of it is good either it just is whatever the hell it is so you getting in your head is not bad and it's not like don't do that you know uh, you being in your body is not good it's just what it is you know? That's right, right. And when we talk nonlinear movement method, what we're talking about is a way to give the body permission to actually process and move and unfold and display everything, not just the things that you in that particular moment feel are great. Oh. And so it's very, very important that the good, bad levels, the you know, true self versus egoic self and all of that gets, it has kind of a level playing field. All of it is washed through depending on what your body needs to wash through. We could say that uh, self-inquiry uh, is an investigation into what's there to be felt. So an example would be you come to yoga mat doing yoga or self-inquiry, should we say, and you're open to whatever your body is capable of doing in, your, in that practice, even if it's less capable than it was before, the day before or the week before. Self-improvement coming from the idea that uh, you need to be different to how you are the assumption that you need to be different to how you are, you need to improve how you are, because then you'll, it's, uh, you'll get to a certain place where things are better, right? fundamentally better. And um, uh, that, uh, so in the yoga practice, let's say, if we draw the distinction between yoga, physical yoga practice, seeing this is physical stuff, 
you know, it's the idea that when I can touch my toes, I'll be better or more spiritual or deeper or something like that. Uh, but then you, so you push, 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 push in order to achieve that goal. You achieve the goal, nothing's different. There's a brief moment of despair or hopelessness, right, which is a window, uh, actually, like confusion, and then it's on to the next thing. Now I need to be able to do lotus or headstand or a backbend of some kind, right, or some arm balance, right? There's endless things in yoga to entertain yourself with and to distract yourself from that dissatisfaction with this, right, whatever it might be. But so, anyway, self-inquiry, though, does equip you with certain things. It tends to equip you with greater clarity. It tends to, in a certain way, there's a tendency, as I'm using the word tends to, as a general trend, it can, by pulling apart and getting clarity on some of the forces that are driving your actions, it can create more space and more maneuverability. If you're gripped by uh, a sensation, subterranean or otherwise, that's constituting of a certain physical driver, a certain mental image driver, and a certain mental talk driver, let's say. These things are driving you. Um, and sometimes we get glimpses into those things that are driving us to behave and act in certain ways. If you can, in a sense, feel what they are, notice those things, pass them apart, then there's the possibility of space in there somewhere, the possibility, which tends to look like more ease in the body. So back to the yoga analogy again. Uh, trying to get into a particular alignment or impose an external standard on how your body should be in terms of your yoga practice is an act of violence on the body, right? An act of aggression or ambition from the mind, leveraging the body to feed the mind's insecurity, you could say. Or otherwise, yoga, right? But, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever it is. But moving with what the body is capable of doing tends to have the effect of nourishing the body, tends to create greater ease in the body. It tends to create better, more openness in the body too. Funnily enough, it tends to open the body, fun, you know, which is kind of like what the other one looks like it's trying to do as well. In other words, you tend to become more flexible, for instance, and stronger, and more calm, and more happy, and so on and so forth. So it kind of looks the same a little bit. It's a bit deceptive in that way, but it's coming from quite different places. Am I, am I saying that? I'm, no, I'm saying that, that sometimes what people do and call yoga is, uh, could be different things. I'm, um, drawing, I'm saying that you could be, look like more or less the same thing on the mat to the casual observer, but it could be something very different, which, which is what uh, Ewan's asking there. But t tomorrow, the day after, we will go into uh, Sanskrit uh, lecture, into Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and we'll look at the source text of yoga to pass apart some of these distinctions, which I'm sure you're all thrilled about. <laughs> Personally, I can't wait. He's using yoga as one example, right? Yeah. This exists everywhere. Um, people going to a, I don't know, money coach or something like that. Or, you know, like you have if issues around money um, or issues around spending, and then you attack this with, a, you know, a vengeance assuming that if you can keep spreadsheets and you have a budget and you write your affirmations and you report to your coach, you know, it's going to get better. And it's the same thing as, you know, this. It's not coming from a place of wholesomeness, you know, of, of enoughness, of 
being okay with who you are. It's coming from a place of, if I do these things, then maybe I'm okay. And with money, it's like, I'll make money, which will show everybody that I'm okay. All right. So it's, it's exactly the same thing as with yoga. You know, just with money, you drive a Porsche. With yoga, you can do a backbend. Uh, but it's the same mechanism. You can, you can do it one way or you can do it the other way. Let's say I'm like very sad, right? So, so I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad. I'm moving my sadness, I'm moving my sadness. Suddenly I find myself in this boo hoo 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 woe is me, oh, my heart hurts so much, right? And so in, 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 if in that moment I have a moment of, oh shit, you know, I'm in my own pity party, which I tend, I, I tend towards self-pity. Right, so I can easily find myself, and it's a very, very pleasant movement. When I catch myself, I go, oh, shit, right? And I just do a different kind of a movement. And at that particular moment, it, it gets me out of that rut. So it's not, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Of course, at some point, you will know all the movements there is, but that's not actually possible because there's infinite number of ways of moving your body. Your body never moves the same twice might be a, a general pattern, but if you keep it non-linear, your body literally never moves the same time, same twice. Because even if you have the same movement three minutes later, your body isn't the same as it was three minutes ago. So it's not so much about that as that you have a wide repertoire and you are on to your own ruts. That's really all it is, is that you get hip for your own practice, right? You get hip to your own groove, your own coping, your own mechanisms. And then of course you can help other people get hip to their own mechanisms. And, and then you suddenly have other information available in the body that sits under those caps. <laughs>